Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So this is episode two now, so we're going to be in conversation with Marcel Levy in just a moment. But uh, Marcel Levy is the CEO <laughs> of UCLH and he's also a clinical hematologist who specializes in coagulation and hemostasis. Anything you like from this episode, Sonia? Yeah, I think this is a great one coming up. I think we've got a to hear from Marcel and his balance that he does between being the chief executive and also running clinics and, and still very much doing his clinician work. And so it's really good to hear how he uses his time in, into both. And I think working in AMU as he does in ward rounds, he really knows what's going on on the floor. And also what was interesting to me was we get to hear about the clotting cascade um, and how actually it's, it's not really uh, relevant. So those years <laughs> of uh, studying it for an exam, I remember, um, didn't really need to bother. <laughs> it's more simple than that. It's more simple than that. Yeah. I like that we found a little bit more about haemophilia because we don't really see non-malignant haematology diseases yeah. on the wards. So how they're treated and what exciting new things. And he was quite pleased to tell us about the new gene therapy, which showed a lot of promise for haemophilia patients that can be delivered as an outpatient. So that was really, really interesting. Yeah, and we, we do talk about some of the clotting issues we see within the haematology wards. We talk a little bit about DIC. We also talk about the sort of clotting issues that transplant patients suffer with. Yeah, so enjoy. No. Yeah, yeah. Can't say the word quiet. You know that. No, no. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> calm, calm, yeah. you say. <laughs> Controlled. Yeah, that sounds better. Oh, right. <laughs> right, so um, today we're with um, our chief executive, Marcel. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to come and talk to us. So we've done a number of podcasts at the moment on um, specifically haematology. Um, and as your day job is very, very busy, I'd imagine, you are still a clinician with, and you're still working within the trust. So to start with, we'd like to know what your week looks like and okay. how much it changes and, and what, how much percentage do you give to, to each? Yeah, well, I spend most of my time being chief executive of the yeah. trust. Um, and that's a mixture of meetings although i'd like to have not too many meetings and also not too long meetings but it's also about meeting a lot of people and have one-to-one -one conversations and hear from them um, how i can help them and uh, what their challenges are or what their uh, what makes them happy um, so i find those things much more gratifying much more helpful than endless you know official meetings in rooms with a lot of people and uh, not being really effective so th that's what I do most of the time I'm an early riser so I start very early in the morning so my the first few hours of the day for me is the time to think and to write and to read and then you know as of 8.30 the other people come in and then it's it's just an endless row of um, appointments and, and, and meeting patients uh, or, or staff or anybody I'm also doing some clinical work. So on Tuesday, I have my outpatient clinic. That's a mixture of um, general internal medicine, vascular medicine. So that's all kind of arterial and venous thrombosis problems. Some of the vascular diseases and um, some hemostasis issues, clotting problems. And then I'm doing a little bit of clinical work in acute medicine and on A&E every other week or so for a day or during the weekend. And I'm also doing an angiodema clinic, which is quite specialized once a month with a team of people who look after these patients. 
Do the patients know that you're the chief executive when they come to the clinic? <laughs> Surprisingly often, yeah. So yeah. I think what patients do, I didn't realize that, is they look you up. Right. Uh, <laughs> if they have an appointment, they look you up on the internet. I think they do that for every doctor. Yeah. Um, so surprisingly, because I never tell them, and I'm sure that, that other people, well, not really tells them uh, regularly, but they, they know it uh, one way or another. Right, yeah. great. I suppose working on the wards as well and A&E and AMU gives you a good idea of what's actually going on in the hospital. Well, that's that's one of the main reasons I'm doing it. So I can read, you know, board papers for hours and, and hundreds and hundreds of pages, but one weekend on AMU and nobody can tell you anything on how the hospital works, how radiology is doing, whether our computer system is helpful or actually frustrating and, and all these things. Yes, so you know absolutely. what the problems are then? Um, it's helpful. It's absolutely helpful. And you know, if you're, if you're on the ward or if you're in the clinic, people start chatting with you and they very quickly forget who you are and they just tell you how things are, good things and bad things. So it's, it's, it's extremely informative. I guess that would be uh, tricky to sort of have that differentiation, but you've obviously found a way to make it work. Yeah, so it's not very. So many people ask me, how can you do that? <laughs> okay, if you, if you are a chief executive, how can you do all the clinical? It's actually quite easy. So if I do my clinic on Tuesday, I have no other appointments on Tuesday. So yeah. it's and I, I know that in advance. Um, so it's it's all planable, and but you need to think a little bit. If 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 a patient calls you or you get an email of a, about an urgent problem, mm. how are you going to do it? Well, we have a very good structure in the hospital that they're very very good junior doctors who can actually take care of that. And then the only thing you have to do is just run over to the other side of the street and say hello to the patient and say everything's under control and I've heard it and it's and it's fine and this is our plan. And um, so even for the acute patients, you can you can actually do it in between the other stuff you're doing. Another thing that I find really interesting is that sometimes, if you look in my diary, I have, um, on, on normal days, I have an appointment almost every 20 or 30 minutes. Wow. So I often tell my secretary, <laughs> so thanks um, for meeting us. <laughs> no, today is, today is a really good day, to be honest. But I often tell my secretary, it's just like doing an outpatient clinic. Right, okay. And, yeah. it's, and you know, the similarities are, are striking. So somebody comes in, starts talking, I have no clue what they're talking about. It's totally <laughs> incomprehensible very often. But that's the same yeah, patient clinic. So you need a few minutes to understand yeah. what the problem really is. And then you actually, both of us are going to explore, you know, what's really going on, what could be the causes of this. So actually you have to, to do a diagnosis. And, and, and then you're going to find, well, what, what, a solution. What, what are we going to do to, to make this things better and how are we going to monitor it that's exactly what I do in the outpatient clinic with my patients and also the other things that I need to do there's you know after 20 minutes people need to leave so and if they don't leave you have all these tricks so you walk to the door yeah. and you have all these you know uh, concluding sentences and all your the papers so together it's actually yeah. not very different okay that's very interesting can we go back can you Talk us through the clotting cascade. Well, I hope you don't mind me saying that I'm not going to do that because it's, <laughs> it's, it's a big artifact. Okay. So that's the interesting thing. If you teach clotting to students, yeah. Yeah. that everybody gets this, you know, this immediate mental blackout because of all these factors There's and all so these arrows and intrinsic and intrinsic. There, it's there. all not true. Right. It is because that's how clotting works in a glass tube. Okay. And there's not a lot of glass in a human body. So all that, you know, storytelling about extrinsic, intrinsic, yeah. compatible, it's not true. Okay. It's simply not true. Clotting is extremely <laughs> simple. It's only two or three steps that you need to know. 
and the rest is probably not relevant. It's not happening in the human body. So clotting has been made extremely complex by very intelligent biochemists. But if you look at it from a bio biologic or medical perspective, it's actually very, very simple. That's really good to know. Yeah. <laughs> no, because really. whenever you read about clotting factors and yeah. the cascade, and you're kind of like, I've been reading for 30 minutes, but what I actually remember now is minutely small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, and all these books and all these texts, they are all copied from all the texts and books. Mm. And, and so it's uh, the quality of all that stuff is really not really good. So clotting is extremely simple. It, Everything starts with tissue factor or thromoplastin. And it's actually quite simple. There's lots of thromoplastin in the human body, but it's not into contact with blood. And that's, mm -hmm. the and, well, that's, that's because we do not want to clot all the time. So it's actually on the outside of the blood vessels. But if, you have a, if somebody cuts into you, a surgeon or, well, nowadays in London, anybody can cut into you, I think, um, then blood comes into contact with the outside part of the blood vessel. Then tissue factor, which is there, comes into contact with blood binds to factor 7, activate factor 10, and that's actually producing thrombin. That's all. Great. Well, Got it. to be totally honest, <laughs> that's not all, because then you would not understand why patients with hemophilia who do not have factor 8 or factor 9 would yeah. clot. But this same tissue factor, factor 7 complex, can activate factor 9 with help of factor 8 and then give additional thrombin. So that it's a reinforcement loop that's quite crucial because if you miss that, then you'll have a bleeding tendency. But that's it. It's not going to be more complex than that. Fantastic. Good. And we've got this recorded now, so we can listen <laughs> back to that. Yeah, yeah perfect. It, you know, you obviously consult with other specialties and patients could develop a coagulation problem at any point. But uh, is there a sort of a main uh, group of patients, a main disease group that you kind of you work with on a, on a regular basis? Yeah, so most of the patients have cardiovascular disease, um, either, uh, you know, venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, or on the other side of the, of the, of the vascular system, arterial thrombosis, stroke patients, um, uh, myocardial infarctions. It's actually all thrombosis. And although, you know, myocardial infarction being dealt with with cardiologists and stroke patients by neurologists, the drugs that these specialists use are all anticoagulant agents. And also there, there's actually quite an exciting new development. So we've been, you know, for more than 70 years, we've been working with heparin and warfarin. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, since let's say 10 years or so, there are new drugs which are as effective or maybe even more effective than warfarin and heparin, probably a little bit safer, so less bleeding complications and so much more easy to, to manage. So also there, there's all kind of new developments. Um, and that's mostly been used in patients with cardiovascular disease. One of my other interests is, is clotting disorders in, in critically ill patients. So patients with sepsis and patients with other severe infections and, 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 and systemic inflammatory conditions. Uh, and they do have very complex coagulopathies. Um, but also in that area, there is much more possible now in terms of diagnosis and better treatment. Have we gotten any information on DIC? I we think we just yeah, mentioned we, when we were talking about we uh, AML and APML that patients will typically present with DIC and it would be the, essentially if you can get them through the first 30 days with yeah. DIC, then they, with APML you can cure them almost entirely. That's but, absolutely true. So, so yeah. acute promyelitic leukemia, that's absolutely true, is, is, is a, a disease with a much better prognosis than any other form of acute myeloid leukemia. But the first few days are complex because of this mm. coagulopathy, which is a variant of, of, of disseminated intravascular coagulation of the IC. It's actually quite rare. 
Well, not if you're a hematology <laughs> nurse. <laughs> yes, at UCH, where there are so many hematology patients. Yeah. Yeah. If you'd work in an ITU, then most of your patients are sepsis patients, mm -hmm. um, and they do have similar coagulopathies. How do you treat DIC? Yeah, well, the most important thing is treatment of the underlying disorder. Um, so people tend to forget that, and they think in terms of platelets and that's plasma what's and all that, because that's what's driving it. So if you have for example, in a patient with sepsis, it's all about proper antibiotics, source control, so really combating the source of the infection and supportive treatment. And that's what they do in the ITU and they do it very well. And then for the then the coagulopathy will disappear as soon as the patient is, is going to improve. In the meantime, you have all kind of supportive treatment that you can offer to patients for the coagulopathy. You can give platelets and plasma if they have severe deficiencies of, of coagulation factors or thrombocytopenia, which is clinically relevant. Um, you can give anticoagulants. So there's quite some evidence that um, heparin or low molecular weight heparin is doing some benefit in these patients and at least prevents them from having venous thromboembolic events. And there is a lot of research going on with specific interventions like, uh, well, we've had for a long time activated protein C, which was really promising, but eventually did not do what we expected it to do. But now there's a lot of clinical trials going on with recombinant thrombomodulin, which is showing, uh, well, some promising uh, effects. So yeah, there's actually lots of things that you, that you can offer to these patients, mostly supportive and adjunctive treatments, because yeah, the underlying disorder is, is what really needs to be, be taken care of uh, primarily. And would that be FFP or cryoprecipitate and things like that? Or? Um, yeah, so if a patient have a coagulation factor deficiency, you can. the best thing to do probably is, if it's clinically relevant though, so if the patient is bleeding or is at high risk of bleeding and it's a severe deficiency, I think the first line of treatment would be plasma, so fresh frozen plasma. But the thing is, there is very often a fluid problem in these patients. They are already overloaded. And then if you have to give them loads of plasma, it's not helpful. So in that case, you can start giving coagulation factor concentrates um, or combination of concentrates, which have a much lower volume and, um, and, and therefore are easier to give. If we we're just going to ask you to give us like a basic rundown of what a nurse would see on a coagulation screen, the sort of the four values that mm -hmm. I think typically I come up, because I think probably a lot of us don't have a great deal of knowledge about it. Could you so give us I a bit of a, an idea of what yeah. we're seeing and oh, what, yeah. what's being measured? It's actually, again, not extremely complex. Perfect. So I would always start with a platelet count, okay. and that will give you an idea of the number of platelets. The pitfall is it's not going to give you any information on the function of platelets, and that's mm something which is not the easiest thing to assess. There are some tests that can give you some information, but they're quite complex and not readily available. Is it common to have problems of platelet function? Well, yeah, it depends. So there are very rare inherited diseases, but there are very often acquired conditions that may cause uh, impaired function of platelets. For example, patients using aspirin or okay. uh, NSAIDs, they will have a, well, it's almost intentional mm -hmm. platelet function defect. Um, but also in patients with kidney disease or patients with liver disease, you may find, well, functional abnormalities in, in platelet function. There are some new tests available now, platelet function analyzers, that can, that can help you with that. So that's the platelet part. Then in terms of clotting factors, the two tests we most often use are prothrombin time and activated partial thromboplastin time, APTT, mm -hmm. so PT and APTT. These are interesting tests because what they actually do, they mimic the function of coagulation in a glass tube. 
and they're very good in detecting deficiencies of a single coagulation factor or multiple coagulation factors. So these are screening tests. So if your APTT or PT is prolonged, it's almost always due to, the, to a deficiency of a coagulation factor, of one or more coagulation factors. For example, if the AT, APTT is prolonged but the PT is normal, you can almost predict which coagulation factor it's going to be. It's probably factor 8 or factor 9 or factor 11. So these tests are helpful screening tests to do. If they are abnormal, the next step is probably to look for um, individual coagulation factors. And you may have an inherited coagulation factor deficiency, which is not always apparent because if it's mild, then you do not have spontaneous bleeding. It's mostly bleeding after trauma or, or upon surgery. Um, or you can have combined coagulation effects. For example, patients with liver disease have a, um, a protein synthesis function disorder and most of the coagulation factors, well, almost all coagulation factors are being produced by the liver. So patients with liver disease have have combined deficiencies. But APTT and PT is actually quite useful. And then we have this um, famous INR. <laughs> and INR is actually exactly the same as a prothrombin-time. Okay. So it's exactly the same. The difference is that, that INR is exclusively being used or should exclusively being used for patients with warfarin. Yeah, because it's standardized, INR means international standardized ratio. It's standardized across the world so that, uh, and prothrombin time is not. Prothrombin time is different from hospital to hospital, from laboratory to laboratory. And INR is a way of standardizing the prothrombin time result because it corrects for the reagents that's been used in the laboratory. And that means that an INR of two in London is the same as an INR of two in Washington or anywhere else in the world. And that's easy because if we talk about clinical trials or about standardized treatment for patients with thrombotic diseases, we all want to speak the same language. But so very often people do not get it. And then, for example, they ask the laboratory to do a prothrombin time and an INR, which is <laughs> which actually is the same thing. exactly the same. <laughs> so the technicians in the laboratory think, well, that doctor really doesn't know what he or she's doing. <laughs> so um, it's one or the other. So if, it's, if the patient is on vitamin K antagonists like warfarin, you do an INR. But if you're interested in how is the coagulation system in a you know, patient with bleeding or patient with a bleeding tendency, then you probably do a prothrombin time. And we sometimes see, particularly our transplant patients, will have coagulation problems that seem to develop because of malnutrition related to yeah. mucositis and severe diarrhea. And yeah, well, that's a complex issue. So in the first, well, it could be due to vitamin K deficiency. Okay. So, patient, so vitamin K is essential for um, four of the coagulation factors, for prothrombin factor two, factor seven, factor nine, and factor 10. So all these factors are produced in the liver, but for the last step in their synthesis, which makes them functionally active coagulation factors, they need vitamin K. Sources of vitamin K are food and intestinal uh, microorganisms. But if the patient is not eating and we're not giving any parenteral nutrition, and if the patient has profuse diarrhea, it's quite likely that that patient will develop a vitamin K deficiency and therefore low, fact, low coagulation factors which are vitamin K dependent. So that's one thing. Another thing is that a lot of these patients, if they're really ill or if they have graft versus host disease or, or something like that, will actually have, their fluids are, are not all intravascularly, they have lots of edema, lots of leakage, mm -hmm. um, and that will also have some effect on the, uh, on the coagulation system. So there are many reasons why where those patients will have coagulopathies. 
In addition to that, a lot of the new drugs that are being used in patients with hemato-oncology diseases, for example in myeloma patients, but also in many other patients, have uh, quite a lot of effects on the coagulation system mm -hmm. and may cause either bleeding or thrombosis. So these new treatments are fantastic because uh, it has really improved the life of many patients with, with blood cancers, but they also have some nasty side effects now and then. And I guess from your specialty, I mean, I came into hematology and the first time I walked on the ward as a student, I kind of thought, well, I'll do some reading beforehand. And I think I looked up, I was telling Sarah, I looked up like hemophilia and then I got on the ward and they're like, well, obviously, you know, this is leukemia and lymphoma. I was like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it, as it turned out, just very little kind of coagulation problems are actually present on the acute ward. So we have TTP patients and we'll have patients with um, antiphospholipid syndrome but it's kind of often clotting is something that's kind of going along secondary maybe to their other main disease process so it's kind of we maybe don't feel as skilled up or as knowledgeable about I coagulation think, yeah. as as we would do with I think you're right, but I, th cancer. I think it's also because of hematology has developed so strongly in, in hemato-oncology and mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. dominating most of the clinical ward, wards and, 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 uh, and the inpatient stuff. If you look at clotting problems, they're actually everywhere. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're a clotting consultant, of course you do work on the hematology uh, ward, but most of your patients are actually in general medicine or in the ITU or you get calls from the operating theaters of patients who bleed, mm -hmm. or in A&E when they have a patient who comes in with a severe bleeding. So, and, and most of the patients with chronic clotting problems like hemophilia, well, nowadays they're hardly ever in hospital anymore. It's mm -hmm. all outpatient clinic or day cases. So it seems that there is kind of a separation between what people call benign hematology and, and malignant hematology. And although there are still many hematologists who do both. So would you say that you advise many teams if there's a clotting problem that's more? Yes, so the actual hemostasis patients, the actual number is, is pretty limited. So of course hemophilia is, a, is, is, is not an extremely rare disease, but the numbers are not huge. It's mostly all managed in an outpatient setting. But in the hospital, I think people who do hemostasis thrombosis have mostly a consultative function. But quite importantly, they get many, many calls from, from many different departments about many, many different problems. Can you tell us a little bit about haemophilia patients and how they're treated and a yeah. bit, little bit more about the disease? That's actually a very exciting time for haemophilia because I think the first breakthrough was about 50 years ago uh, when all the clotting factor concentrates became available. So like factor eight and Factor eight yeah. and it started with cryoprecipitate which is yeah. already outdated but yeah. then we had all the factor eight concentrates, factor nine concentrates and that changed the life of haemophilia patients from haemophilia became from an untreatable very debilitating disease into a still not very nice but at least treatable disease and, and people could live normal lives and have a, have a very good quality of life and but and but now actually uh, there is a new phase with all kind of new treatment modalities which actually even further improve the life of hemophilia patients i'm extremely excited for example by um, gene therapy that's now slowly slowly becoming available it's a fantastic UCL, UCLH success story because it's, it's most of the work's been done here in London at UCL. And, um, and then, of course, the clinical trials have been done everywhere in the world. But it actually is the first time that, that you can cure hemophilia, or, although it's still complex and it's probably very expensive, etc. But it's, it's, it, is, it is a solution for a disease that's been with us for centuries. So, yeah, I think hemophilia treatment nowadays is, is really exciting.
Is haemophilia inherited or not? What, what are the risk kind of factors? Haemophilia is a genetic disease, um, so it is inherited, although about 25-30% um, of patients have a new mutation, so they do not have a family history, but they're the first ones. And also because uh, we now know that the hemophilia diagnosis is not really difficult and also the genetic diagnosis is not extremely difficult. So you can actually do genetic counseling. So if a, a carrier of hemophilia, which is a woman, um, is, is usually known to, uh, um, uh, to their doctor, so they can actually, there are all kinds of tricks you can, you, can, you can do to prevent her from getting a boy with hemophilia. You mentioned that there's gene therapy. So what does that look like and what types of treatments? Well, gene therapy is actually quite interesting. So what's being done is you inject a virus into a patient. Usually it's a it modified adenovirus. That virus contains the genetic information of, for example, factor eight. And then um, genetic information is being incorporated in the uh, recipient cells and is then going to produce factor eight. It's not very efficient. You, so a, a severe hemophilia patient has less than 1% factor eight and the most efficient gene therapy viral factors can actually bring that up to, let's say, in the neighborhood of five or slightly more percent. But that's enough from converting somebody with severe hemophilia into moderate hemophilia, which is a totally different life. And where does this treatment take place? Do they need to be an inpatient for that, or can that be done as outpatient or at clinical research facilities? Well, mostly, most of the experience until now has been experimental and in, in the framework of clinical trials, so then it's been given in hospital, but it is actually a day case, a, a, a day case procedure, or even a, probably it will be an outpatient procedure. And, um, and it's a one-off, so you, well, so far, we don't know, because there's not a lot yeah. of long-term follow-up. But instead of injecting yourself in a vein three times a week, what severe hemophilia patients often have to do. Oh, is it intravenous, the recumbent clotting factors? The clotting factors uh, have okay. to be given intravenously. Wow. Gene therapy is intramuscularly. It's a single injection. Right. So it's, it's a totally Game different changer. world for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. Great. Good. Can, uh, yeah, can you just talk us through angioedema? And, yeah. and, and what, what that patient would present with um, and look like and how you would treat that. Yeah, angioedema is a puzzling disease. So, so what is angioedema? Angioedema is actually swelling of any body part. And for example, it could be a lip or it could be your cheek or it could be around the eyes or it could be a hand or a foot. It could be abdominal, which you cannot see, but that can be actually giving lots of intestinal problems with acute um, obstruction, diarrhea, vomiting, a lot of pain. And uh, it could give, it could be life-threatening angioedema of the airways. It's mostly soft tissue that can swell because it's due to extravasation of intravascular fluid. So the um, there is increased um, permeability of the vessel wall quite suddenly. Thereby, fluid can leak out. It'll go to places which are soft because there's more space there, and then it will give swelling quite impressively. So a patient with angioedema in the face. And, and most patients nowadays show, show the pictures on their telephone if they come to your clinic. Mm. Their face is completely different from, from, and people won't recognize them. They're completely, well, and it, this can occur within hours. And of course, the, the life-threatening edema, which can give uh, asphyxia and death, is, is, is a, well, quite a threatening thing for patients. The different forms of angioedema, so the, the, the type I'm most interested in is, is a hereditary form of angioedema and it's due to a congenital deficiency of a protein in the blood, C1 inhibitor. It's very rare. 
I would say there's only a few thousand patients in the UK. Um, but and it's a familial disease, it's an hereditary disease, although there is also some patients with spontaneous, with new mutations. And in the old days, all these people died because of, of a, a, an angioedema attack and, um, um, and asphyxia. But nowadays, we have very good therapies, actually. So there's maintenance therapy with pills, uh, which can prevent angioedema attacks. And there is acute treatment, for example, with C1 inhibitor concentrate for those patients who have a um, C1 inhibitor deficiency and present with a, with a serious attack. And that helps almost immediately. So it's, it's a bit of a niche area with not so many patients. The, the vast majority of patients who come with angioedema have no deficiency of, of whatever protein, but they have an allergic or hyperreactive profile. And that's completely different. That's a completely different treatment, uh, but it's not the most difficult disease to treat if the diagnosis is made. And that could be elimination of the allergic trigger, but it could also be just suppression of uh, histamine receptors or, well, a couple of new forms of therapy that seem to be very effective. Wow. I've never, I've never seen anybody with that. No, I think no. we've only really so, heard so about rare. it or thought about it in terms of, like, an anaphylaxis. And that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's because that's most common. Yeah. yeah. So it's more common that they would have an attack, you say, because it's something that set it off, as it like an exacerbation? Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting thing. So sometimes it's quite clear what causes an angioedema attack. Um, both in the hereditary patients and in, in, in the hyperactive patients. So they had uh, physical stress, they have been working in the garden with their hands and then the next day they will have a swollen hand or they've done you know, some exercise and then they will have a swollen leg. And um, many patients, and that's, nobody really understands why that is, many patients will tell you they have angioedema in a if they have a stressful episode in their lives. Um, you know, they have to give a presentation on, for their job or they uh, have to do exams. And, and so nobody really understands it, but it's, it's crystal clear that, that stress may cause angioedema. So it's very interesting. So my patients with hereditary angioedema, when they were... Most of them, when they were going to marry, they came to me the day before and we, we gave them treatment because it was so Stressful. it was so clear that they would have an angioedema attack. And that's not very nice for your wedding pictures, actually. <laughs> so, so that was a very good reason to give yeah. prophylactic Yeah, treatment. so interesting. Yeah. Or so, when they, you know, even simpler, when they had a driving test or something yeah, like that. Things exam. that really upset people. That is a very good reason to give them prophylaxis, made them much more calm because the angioedema at least was eliminated, and so they could focus much more on the. Uh, how on the often event. might they have uh, an attack? Is yeah, it sort well, of per year. Or it could per... be pretty rare, so it yeah. could be once or twice a year. Okay. Um, which is, in my view, not even a reason to give maintenance therapy. Then it's better to treat the attack when it's there or when it's coming up. But some patients have, have are severely effective and have you know almost every week or even more often an angioedema wow. attack, and then it's going to have a real impact on their on their lives and their yeah. quality of life and school and, and work and job and everything. And those patients are the patients that that we treat with prophylaxis. Is it progressive at all in terms of like you, no. you have a mild attack, but then later on it, it might impact? No, it's quite or... variable, although you, sometimes you can predict. So there's it's phases in life. But for, for example, in women, it's sometimes it's related to the, to the monthly cycle mm -hmm. or it and it's certainly related to pregnancy. So pregnant patients may have much more, many more attacks. Um, so they need a little bit more um, intense treatment during their pregnancy. Later in life, it usually gets better for one reason or another. Um, we, I don't think we really understand that. Um, so it can be quite variable.
Anything else you want to add about anything? About anything anything? you want. The whole world's listening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what I often tell students, um, so if somebody comes to me and say, I'm going to do or I want to do hematology, could be a nurse or it could be a doctor, I usually think, well, that's, that's a fantastic choice. People don't realize how hematology is actually on the forefront of many, if not all, medical specialties nowadays. So so if I lecture medical students, and for example, I, I, I talk about myeloma, which is not a, not a rare disease, it's quite common. It's terrible, isn't it? You were saying. Let's, let's do it again. If, <laughs> if I lecture medical students and I teach them about myeloma, which is a common disease, and I'll tell them that only 10 years ago, myeloma was almost untreatable and it was a horrible disease and almost everybody would die within five years and it would be a very, very bad last few years of your life. And that's completely changed now and we can cure or at least um, for a very long time cure or treat patients with myeloma now by by relatively simple means. I'm fascinated. Well, students look at you and think, well, you're a dinosaur. But actually, actually I'm really exciting. And and there are new stuff happening. There's new stuff happening in hematology almost every three months. So Mm. it's going really fast and it's getting so much better. And it's not the end of it, I think. So so if somebody comes to me and says, well, I want to be a hematology nurse or a, or a hematologist, I think, I think by myself, well, that's a, that's a very smart decision. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I totally I, agree. I agree, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you.